morning we are uh, starting a new sermon series in, uh, in the book of Genesis, particularly the, the back part of Genesis, the life of Joseph, the life of, uh, of the man Joseph. And, you know, I really believe, I don't think this is just uh, preacherly hyperbole, uh, but I really do think that for some of us, for some of us, this is going to be a really, really important uh, sermon series. You know, Joseph is a man uh, who we see all of the ups and downs, joys and heartbreaks of human experience. We see a life of incredible influence, incredible success uh, in some ways, and yet also a life uh, that knew the depths of sorrow and betrayal and heartbreak. A man who, who experienced life in all of its ups and downs, and yet at the end of all of it, at the end of all of it could say that this life, that though some meant it for evil, God, God meant it for good, that he was working good, even in the midst of the hardest parts of my life. That's what we've called our series, Meant for Good. And for some of us, the greatest act of faith, the greatest call of faith that we'll ever be asked to is to look at our own lives, uh, the absolute mess of them sometimes, and believe that even in this, even in this, God is working something good and beautiful. And so uh, we start our series today uh, with a look at Genesis chapter 37, where we're introduced to Joseph for the first time. If you're willing and able, would you please stand as we read God's word? Our scripture reading comes from Genesis 37, 1 through 11. Jacob lived in the land of his father sojourning, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report to them and their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheath arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to rule over us? Or are you indeed to rule over, to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers, and he said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and his brothers, his father rebuked him, and he said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow yourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the, the saying in mind. This is the word of the Lord is absolutely true and given to us in love. You can be seated. So I have a, a bad habit. Um, I love to read books. And it's not uncommon for me uh, to be reading five, six, seven, eight books uh, at once. If you look at, uh, at my desk, there'll be two or three books open. There'll be a stack of them over to the right. If you look at my bedside table, there's probably a stack of six or seven books there. Uh, Haley, my wife, is a, she's a, a, a better reader than I am. She reads one, finishes it. Her nightstand looks nice and, and tidy and orderly. 
and mine is just always a mess. It's not an ideal way to read. I wish that I kind of read one, finished it, put it away, done. Read one, put it away, done. Because when you graze, when I read all of these different books, it's hard to keep up with it all. Right? It's hard to jump from reading uh, one book on sociology, then another book on theology, and then a, 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 maybe a spy novel or something fun. And to keep all those things going and all those plots in my head, it can be, it can be kind of overwhelming. And as bad as the habit is, I do think that it, it's helped to prepare me in a, in a rather unusual way for what life is like uh, being a pastor. Uh, to be a pastor in a lot of ways is to read 200 stories at once. It's to try to track not only God's work in my own life, not only my own ups and downs and tragedies, and, and to try to figure out what God's up to in the midst of my life. But it's also to be in life with all of you and to, and to track your stories, to know your heartbreaks, to know your sorrows, to, to have all of these open books that I'm invested in, that I can't wait to keep turning the pages. And, and Some of it's reading the history and getting to know who you are and what made you who you are. Some of it's waiting to see the story unfold and to see what God's doing in your life, what kind of story God's writing uh, in your lives, in your relationships, in your callings. They're right. We all are living these stories. And sometimes it's really disorienting because I'll be with somebody and maybe we're reading a chapter uh, about a new engagement and we're in counseling for that. Or maybe we're, we're reading a chapter about a new baby welcomed into the world. Or we're reading together a story about a fresh wind of God's grace in your life is you're experiencing renewal and intimacy in ways that you've never had before. And then maybe at the end of that meeting, I put a bookmark there and, and shut the book and put it, put it away for a minute. Then I go and sit with somebody else, and it's a different chapter altogether. This chapter's about cancer, or this chapter's about a betrayal, or this chapter's about an addiction. And it can be, it can be disorienting to read all of these stories and to know and to love these stories and to believe that there's actually an author that's writing each of our stories with some kind of purpose. That each of our stories in their own way are stories about Jesus. They're stories about his redemption. They're stories about something good. It can be hard uh, to hold that all together. I feel like sometimes as a pastor, my job is to help you read your story and to help you to not lose track of the plot that there really is grace in your story, that there really is good being worked through, even the really, really hard chapters, right? Even the chapters that you thought were maybe going to be one chapter and have turned into two or three or four, right? That you thought this, the tragic part of your story would be short. And so we sit together and we try to figure out uh, the plot. We try to discern God's hand. We try to discern God's grace. One of the great resources that God's given to pastors is a line from a fellow pastor, the Apostle Paul, when he writes uh, to a church in Rome, in Romans 8.28. And he says this, he says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. We know that for God's people, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. I don't know how many times I've said those words, uh, sitting with someone in the midst of a bad diagnosis, sitting with somebody in the midst of marital crisis. God works all things for good. And if I'm honest, sometimes those words just kind of barely fall out of my mouth, and it feels like they smack down on the hospital floor somewhere, and they just lay there 
while you and I both try to figure out if we believe it, uh, while we both try to figure out if there's any truth uh, to those words. And I think that's the gift uh, of the Joseph story uh, to us. I think it's one of the Bible's richest pictures of what it really means to say that God works all things together, all of our lives together for good. We're prone to think that what that means is that all of our stories are eventually going to have a happy ending. Right? We're prone to believe, uh, because we're Americans, <laughs> because we, uh, we're, as Americans, we're materialists, <laughs> we're individualists. We're prone to think when it says that God means our stories for good, that means that every time I lose a job, I'm going to get a better one. Right? If God closes a door, or he's going to open a window, or whatever that is. If he hands you lemons, he's going to make lemonade. Right? If If I have a divorce, it means that God's got a much, much better marriage for me down the road. If I go through struggles with my kids now, one day everything's going to be great. And the problem with that, of course, is that, I mean, we've lived enough life, and we've known enough friends, and we've seen enough things to know that if that's that's the good that God's working, then then it's a lie, right? It's not a promise. We've We've seen it fall flat too many times. But Joseph shows us, uh, this story shows us that there is something good, something deeply and profoundly good that God's working in our lives even more than giving us the circumstantial changes that we're after, even more than us getting the happy ending that we think we want. That in Joseph's life, we see somebody whose, whose blessings and curses, even his tragedies and betrayals, get worked into this story where he ends up resembling Jesus in ways that almost no other character in the, in the Old Testament does. He points us to Jesus, points us to God's redemptive work. God uses Joseph to save not only his own people, but the, the better part of the known world at the time from a famine. God works redemptively. He works lovingly. He works through Joseph and beyond Joseph to work something that's good. You know, our story starts uh, with Joseph's dreams. And what we see uh, as we look at this, and as we think about our own dreams, is that sometimes the good that God wants to work in us and through us doesn't mean that we achieve all of our dreams. In fact, sometimes it means that God has to uh, break our dreams. Sometimes our dreams are are precisely what gets in the way uh, of the life that God wants for us. And so we start uh, with Joseph the dreamer. You know, Joseph, uh, as we introdu- or we're introduced to him here, is 17 years old. He's uh, one of the younger two sons of his father, Jacob. And he's clearly at this point, clearly when we first meet him at 17, he's his father's favorite. Right? He's his father's beloved son. He's a child of his old age. In the midst of these other brothers, it's clear that, God, that, uh, that, jo- that Jacob, Joseph's father, has somehow just set his affections on Joseph in a way that's that's different than the way that he loves his other brothers, right? He's his favorite. He gives him this gift. Uh, you know, we're, we're used to translating it, a coat of many colors. As you get into the, the scholarship around it in the Hebrew, it becomes clear we don't really know what it means. Um, some, some people translated it, gave him a, a robe with long sleeves, which doesn't seem particularly special to us. Um, but it, it, what's evident is that it was a decorated ornamental robe a robe that conferred on Joseph this identity, that you're the favorite. You're the one that your your dad loves best. 
You're the one that he's most proud of. You're the one that he has the highest hopes for. It was almost a symbol of royal identity, that he was going to be wearing this robe. It becomes clear that, that it's not only just that he, was jo- that he was Jacob's favorite, but actually God had somehow set his blessing on Joseph in a really unique way. That's what the dreams clue us into right at the beginning of the story. That not only is it just kind of his father's favoritism, but God has a special, special call on Joseph. He has a special plan for Joseph that he's speaking to him and he's shaping him and he's leading him. You know, it's ironic that in some ways Joseph has uh, the very thing that all of us long for, the very thing that all of us in some ways most want, which is to know that, that our father loves us, that he's proud of us, that he blesses us. And yet there was something about it. There's something about it because of, maybe it was because of the favoritism that his dad overlooked his other brothers. But it didn't have this effect in Joseph's life of making him humble and, and, and feeling just awed by his blessing of God and his dad. Instead, it puffed him up. I mean, quite honestly, when you read the story uh, that Tessa read for us this morning, Joseph seems insufferable, right? He seems like the worst possible caricature of what your brother could be like. Can you imagine what it would be like to be Joseph's brother? To know that not only did he have the special, you know, for Christmas when dad gave you this ugly beige sweater, dad gave him this beautiful, rich jacket. And that instead of kind of being a little embarrassed by it, he struts around in it all the time and he's always reminding you about it. It tells us that, that Joseph, we get two details. One is that Joseph brought to their dad a bad report about his brother's. The, the language here insinuates uh, that not only was he just a tattletale, uh, telling stories about their, the brothers to the dad, but that they weren't true stories. That's the way that bad reports typically uh, functions in the Old Testament. That he's not only just tattling on him, he's making stuff up about him. He's taken the, their dad's favoritism and he's exploiting it and trying to make it even wider. See how these, these rotten kids of yours, see how bad they are. They're doing this and they're doing that. So he's He's gossiping about his brothers. He's making up lies about his brothers. He's trying to tear them down in front of their dad. So he's, a, again, not, not the kind of brother you'd want. And then, in a, in a moment of just amazing lack of emotional intelligence, comes to his brothers and says, Brothers, behold, I've had the most wonderful dream. Listen to this dream I've had. There, there were 12 sheaves, and then all of a sudden, mine was elevated. And yours just, just, just bowed in front of me. Brothers, can you believe? What do you think my dream means? Oh, and then I had another dream. This time it wasn't just, again, there were 12. This time 12 stars, but also the moon and the sun. And then my star started shining just a little brighter. And your stars fell down around it. This time, not only are they enraged, jealous, angry, but now their dad, the one that that has favor, you know, is is exalted Joseph, goes, really, your mom and I too? Are we also supposed to bow down and worship you? You know, the the strange irony here is that the dreams actually do come true. Uh, I don't don't mean to give a spoiler, but there there is a moment in the story where where the brothers and the, the, the dad bow before Joseph. So the dream was legit. The the, the dream came from God. 
What didn't come from God was Joseph's interpretation of the dream. What it meant to Joseph, right? In Joseph's mind and the energy that he brought behind the dreams to his brothers, it was a dream about basically his own deification. It was basically a dream about them worshiping him. Right? When it comes true, finally, it's going to be about him blessing them. God's going to do an incredible amount of change in Joseph's life. But at this point, Joseph's dream can only come true when he's worshipped almost as a god. As I read this, uh, as I thought about this, you know, the first thought you have when you meet Joseph is, what a jerk. Right? What a, you know, quite frankly, he's got coming to him, whatever happens, uh, as the story goes on wanting to be worshipped by his family, wanting to tattle on his brothers. What, a, what an insufferable, narcissistic, self-obsessed, pretty boy, spoiled child. But then if you, if you really ask yourself, as I ask myself, <laughs> how many of my dreams for my life ultimately can only be satisfied if people worship me? Right? How much is my dream for my own life my dreams of success, my dreams of comfort, my dreams of family, how much is it all ultimately not just about the, the details of the dream, but about all of it coming together to, or, to orbit around me? Right? Not just, I don't want to be successful so that I can make money and then give it away super generously. Even if I, say, even if I do want to give generously, right? at some point I want other people to know about it. <laughs> I want people to think I'm generous. I want people to think I'm successful. Right? I want the, my family to grow and to be thriving, and to be happy, and to be wonderful. Yes, because I want, sure, I want that for my kids, but also because I want to be that kind of dad that everybody looks at and goes, wow, what a great dad. So many of our dreams, so many of our ambitions, ultimately are dreams about us. Uh, they're idolatrous dreams. They're dreams where we're the hero, uh, and the ending that we're after is only about our own celebration. Right, I remember, you know, when I used to sit in the backyard and fantasize, play basketball games or football games in my mind, right, I didn't fantasize about making the pass to the guy who hit the shot and got carried off the court. Right? I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't fantasize about being the manager that brought the water bottle to Michael Jordan so that he could be, you know, go do his job. No, every kid dreams of hitting the game-winning shot, be carried off, everybody cheering. Right? All of our dreams from a young age are about fame. They're about, they're about uh, ourselves being exalted. Joseph, as we meet him here, is absolutely unfit uh, for the story that God wants to write in his life. Right? If you took this narcissistic, prideful, bent on self-exaltation Joseph and did the kinds of things, had the kinds of impact that we're going to see God wanting to have through his life, Joseph would have only been 10 times more insufferable uh, than he is when we meet him here. He only would have gotten more puffed up, more arrogant, less and less a picture um, of who God is and what he wants. And so what we're going to see is that, that Joseph's dreams uh, have to be broken. Uh, he has to have them replaced by new dreams. But before that happens, uh, and sadly the way that it works in many of our lives, before we get the right dreams, before we have new dreams, we have to encounter the nightmare uh, of what life in a sinful and fallen world really looks like. Uh, we have to experience the, the heartbreak uh, of what life in a world where, where things just aren't as they should be, what it really means. So we're going we're gonna to flip ahead later in Genesis 37 and look at how this story continues. 
So, uh, so Jacob, Joseph's father, sends Joseph out uh, to, meet to, to meet his brothers who are with the flocks out in Shechem, different area kind of removed from their home. And so Jacob sends Joseph out to check on them. Uh, and, it, and the story builds over these verses, and it's just clearly at the picture of a, a lamb being sent to the wolves. This kid, uh, this arrogant, self-centered kid, being sent out to these brothers who he's embittered and his father's embittered against him. And so the brothers uh, hatch a plan uh, to get rid of their brother. And so we're going to pick it up again in verse 23. And I'll read to the end of the chapter. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and they threw him into a pit. And the pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he's our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. Then he identified it and said, This is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son for many days. And all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Egypt, the captain of the guard. So the dream uh, quickly fades, uh, quickly gives, uh, gives way to, to what's really a nightmare. His brothers, uh, so aggrieved, so hateful of him, uh, at first decide to kill him and then eventually sell him into slavery. You know, it's amazing that this, this family is the family of God's chosen people, right? We are now two generations or three generations from Abraham, the man that God chose of all the people of the earth and said, through you and through your family, I'm going to save the world. Through you, I'm going to bless the whole world. And already by this time, the, the family is deeply, deeply dysfunctional. Jacob, uh, Joseph's dad, in his own life, had been, uh, his, he was one of two brothers, and his brother Esau had been his father's favorite. He had been the one who was loved in the exclusion of the other. And then Jacob deceived his father, just like his sons are now deceiving him with a bloody robe and a slaughtered animal. He deceived his father by putting on goat skins to convince his father that he was really his brother and to steal the blessing from him. And so now he's replaying that in the, in the way that we have in our families of just replaying the same drama over and over again, passing down the same dysfunction, the same sinful patterns. He's doing the same thing to his kids. His favoritism of the one is now leading to this level of dysfunction. Right In this family, we see really the way that life 
in a fallen world works is right, is that we're always being wounded by the sin of others and then committing sins against others, right? It's, it's, it's not an either or, right? All of us are victims of the sins of others and all of us victimize others in our own sin, right? Jacob, Jacob's sons, Joseph had sinned against his brothers through his own arrogance, through his own pride, and now he was being sinned against by his brothers, being being sold into slavery, right? If you, contemporary psychology tells us that we are primarily about the ways that others have sinned against us, right? You're mainly identified by your family's dysfunction, the failure of your parents, the sins that were done to you, right? Sometimes conservative religion, religious folks can make you feel, no, 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 you're basically about the choices that you make, your own shortcomings, your own sins against others. Just stop it. Choose to be better. But in reality, it's not that simple. Right? All of us receive wounds from our friends, from our peers, from those who, who should have been the most loving to us. I mean, this is a family. This is fathers and brothers. These are the ones who, who were supposed to be their brother's keeper, the ones who were supposed to be a safe place for Joseph, lashing out against him. And all of our lives are marked by betrayals, by sins against us. But we're also sinners, right? We're, we're, we're wounded, but we're also wicked. Uh, in and of ourselves. We're in this web. We're caught in this web where we receive sin and we give sin. It's the currency of life in a fallen world. It's the way that life works. Uh, I, I came upon this quote uh, from a novelist, a man named Harry Cruz, um, who actually, he, he grew up in a small town in southeast Georgia. And a uh, very, very small town. He actually lived in Jacksonville for much of his life. Um, and then went on taught creative writing at the University of Florida. But Cruz, uh, in his memoir, is telling the story of life in this really small, impoverished Georgia town and about what life was like uh, there in that rural community. And he tells the story of sitting uh, with a friend of his, his boys, and looking through the Sears catalog, looking through the Sears catalog and looking at the lives of the people that he saw in the Sears catalog. And this is what Cruz writes. He says, nearly everybody I knew had something missing. A finger cut off, a toe split open, an ear chewed away, an eye clouded with blindness from a glancing fence steeple. I, I didn't grow up in, a, in rural Georgia, um, but we do know that, uh, that everybody's wounded. And, uh, and Cruz's experience was that everyone was broken. But the people in the catalog had no such hurts. They were not only whole, they were also beautiful. So he's looking, him aware of this incredibly broken reality, and looking at the shiny people in the Sears catalog and just saying, it didn't ring true. They were shiny, they were beautiful, they were perfect. And so he starts to make up stories about the people in the Sears catalog. He says, under all those fancy clothes, there had to be scars. There had to be swellings and boils of one kind or another because there's no other way to live in the world. And I decided that all the people in the catalog were related, not necessarily blood kin, but they knew one another. And because they knew one another, there had to be hard feelings, trouble between them off and on, violence and hate between them, as well as love. I love that picture. Two little kids looking over the Sears catalog. This is the days before the internet where you just had constant access to pictures of people whose lives seemed perfect. And he's looking at it and he goes, I know that that's not the life that I know. Right? Everybody I know is broken. 
Everybody's chewed up. Everybody's, everybody's a mess. It's the only, I love his line, there's no other way to live in this world. And that's what Joseph starts to experience uh, as his story goes on. There is no way to live in this world apart from sin. There's no way to live where your, where your story just goes from your father's love, your, his blessing, you're his favorite, in this continually upwardly arcing uh, story until it ends with your father and your mother and your brothers bowing down before you in worship. Right? Life just doesn't follow this track to your own exaltation. That in this life, everybody gets bloodied, everybody gets broken. We all get rejected. We all get sick. We all fail. In this life, there's only one way to live. You know, Joseph uh, will say at the end of his life to his brothers, imagine that. Imagine in, in this moment that one day this, this man will say to his brothers, what you meant for evil, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Now, I don't think that's what Joseph's thinking when he's at the bottom of, a, of an empty well. Right? When, when Joseph's crying out from the well, he's not saying, God's going to mean this for good. Right? No, what's he thinking? Guys? Guys? Are you, are you still there? Are you coming back? Right? These are his brothers. I love the, the tragic scene where Judah says, guys, guys, we've got to come to our senses here. We can't kill our brother. He's our own flesh and blood. He's our brother. Let's just sell him to slavery. Right? We can't kill him. Let's make some money. Let's send him off into slavery. Right? He, Joseph has suffered just the depths of betrayal, the depths of pain. And it is looking on it to say one day that, that God meant it for good. He doesn't ignore the fact that his brothers meant it for evil. Right? Evil is real. There are people in our lives who mean us evil. Life in a fallen world, we have an enemy who means us evil. And Christianity is never, uh, the gospel never invites us just to pretend that the hard things in our lives aren't hard. To pretend that what was evil wasn't evil. No, Joseph says, you meant it for evil. You really did. It really was sin. It was really terrible. Life in the bottom of that well, that betrayal was lonely and it was hard. But God God meant something else for it. And so through this nightmare, God gives Joseph a better story, gives him a better dream. You know, the, the incredible truth is that out of this dysfunction, out of this, this broken family, what God is going to do in the midst of Joseph going to Egypt, Joseph, through betrayal after betrayal, it's going to get worse before it gets better. Right? But in Joseph's life, he's going to end up being the right-hand man to the most powerful person in the world. Through Joseph's wisdom and through his godliness, God is going to spare, again, the better part of the known world from a famine. God's going to use Joseph to work redeeming grace in the midst of this family who hates one another. He's going to use Joseph to extend forgiveness. He's going to use Joseph to bring his people uh, one day into Egypt where they're going to grow and thrive and become a great people until God calls them out of there to ultimately become the people through whom he blesses the whole world through Jesus. Right? I don't know of any other story in the Bible where the character more closely resembles, by the end of it, the story of Jesus. Right? Sold, betrayed by his brothers, going down to the depths of humiliation and death, 
only to be exalted in order to bless the entire world. Right? That, that's the story of Jesus. That's the story of Jesus that Joseph comes to resemble so closely. If you want to know what the good is that God is working through the pain of our lives, through the pain of our stories, it's the hope that one day, just as Joseph, his story looked ahead towards Jesus, is a rough sketch of what Jesus would look like. So too, in our suffering, we might look like a sketch of Jesus, looking back uh, to the one who entered into suffering and death in order to bless the world. There would be not only, just, not just in spite of our suffering, but somehow through it in the midst of it that we would come to know Jesus and come to bless uh, those that he's given us in our lives. You know, I had an incredible experience. I've, I've preached through the Joseph story once before um, at a church that I was at in Orlando. And after the, the, the first or second week of preaching through the life of Joseph, I had a man who said, hey, I'd like to make a counseling appointment. Uh, I'd like to come in. And as he came in, he said, Dave, I just feel like God's doing something in my life through this story. As you tell about Joseph's betrayal, I think of my own betrayal. I think of my wife, uh, my ex-wife now, who made false allegations against me and got me arrested. I think about the betrayal of losing my children, losing everything that I thought that I had. I know the bitterness of what it is to feel wrong, to feel like I suffer injustice. I know what it is to feel like, like there's no one around me, to feel like my story, I thought I was the special one, I thought I was going to do incredible things, and my life has come bankrupt. I feel like Joseph, and I feel like God's doing something in my life, that he wants me to look uh, at, at what I've suffered. And so we did. We started, we started meeting together. We met together every week. And as I got to know this man and got to know his story, I got to know the incredible things that he'd suffered, but also started to catch a glimpse of the incredible grace that God had worked in his life. The way that, that he began to realize, yeah, I've suffered injustice, but you know what? All of my wife's worst false allegations against me, there, there, there's some truth to all of them, right? Maybe not, maybe not the depths of what, but, but yeah, I'm not, I was not a good dad. I was not a good husband. Starting to see the hope of his ability to reunite with his children, starting to catch a glimpse of the vision that God may not want him just to sit in self-pity, but start to actually lead, start to have some of the dreams that he'd had as a kid start to return to him. It was incredible. Because what ultimately we realized was it wasn't his likeness to Joseph that God was doing in his life. That, that wasn't the main thing. It was in both of their likeness to Jesus. Right? It was in seeing God's redemptive power in Joseph's life, seeing Joseph begin to have hope in the midst of his pain that began to give this man a sense that his life, too, could start to resemble the life of Jesus, that, yes, he suffered, but he was also capable of love. He was also capable of being a great blessing to his children, to his church, to the people around him. And that's our hope as we come to Joseph's story. It's not that we would just look at Joseph. and I mean, it's an incredible story. It's, it's got plot twists. It's got things in it that you, just when you think he can't suffer more, he's going to suffer again, but then he's going to get out of it. It's going to be incredible, better than any Hollywood movie. But the point isn't Joseph's story, and the point isn't our stories. Uh, the point of it is the, the larger story of Jesus, that one day we'll fully see that all of our stories find their meaning, find their purpose, find their hope in that story. It's not that our stories are headed to a, to a rosy, happy ending but that one day all of our stories are going to find themselves caught up in this glorious story 
that ends not just in a, ha a happy ending would cheapen it. It's a story of redemption. It's a story of the world remade and us finding ourselves in perfect intimacy with Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we admit that sometimes we just lack the faith and the wisdom to have any clue what you're doing in our lives, to have any clue the story that you're writing in the midst of these disjointed chapters. But Lord, because we know you, because we know your story and we know your character, we, we trust that you're writing something good and beautiful and redemptive in our lives. Then we read the last page of our story. When the book is closed, we'll be able to say it was, it was all about Jesus all along. It was all about his grace. It was all about him being the hero. It was all about his redemptive work. Lord, give us the faith to see your hands, to see your fingerprints, to see your, your intent, uh, even behind the hardest chapters of our stories. Lord, give us the faith to believe that you are redeeming us, that you are remaking us into the very image of Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.